Hi, and welcome back to season three of the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of my favorite ways to find a podcast, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Today, I'm speaking with Julia Bueno. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, there are several female-centric topics that I don't feel get enough attention or open discussion, one being pregnancy loss. Julia has taught and practiced law, but following her own painful experience with miscarriage, became a psychologist with specialized knowledge of pregnancy loss. Her first book, The Brink of Being, encourages people to reflect upon this often misunderstood and little-discussed event. She's also working on her next book, currently titled Everyone's a Critic, exploring the universal habit of self-criticism. But I do also think there's a big bit around women's mental and physical health generally being relegated and ignored and not looked at and people shy away from. We don't like being really candid about women's bodies going wrong. Hi, Julia. Thanks for joining me today. It's really nice to have you here. How are you? I'm well. I've just had my second COVID jab, so I will soon be fully armed against the plague. And here's hoping I don't have some horrific side effects while we're talking, but I'm, I'm hopeful. How'd you do with the first one? I, better, than, better than others. I had a, a very intense three hours where I ticked every single side effect on the leaflet, but it was contained within three hours. So <laughs> three hours. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> my uh, yeah, my friends and family think it's quite typical because I, I tend to do things in a very quick, condensed way. I'm always a, I do things in a hurry. I, I condensed everything to three hours. That might be a good way to answer my first question because I was on your website and it says many moons ago, which I can't believe it was that many moons ago, but that you were a teacher and you practiced law. So knowing now that you're a psychotherapist and counselor and you've written books and hmm. how have you found time in your not that long of life to be a teacher, to practice? How have you done all this? <laughs> Oh, you're very kind, but it really was many moons ago. But I, I suppose the, the one aspect of that is I started young. I, I left school young. I went to university young and I left university young. Always ahead at school and never really held back, although there are probably a few years when I should have been. But anyway, so that, that gave me a head start. But I, and, and nor was my legal career particularly long, let's be honest. I, I, I was on track to be an academic lawyer. I really thrived in the academic law. But after a kind of year of teaching that, I realised that very early on, I didn't want to be an academic, so flirted with practicing law, but my heart was never really in it. And actually, if truth be told, I think my hankering to be a sort of therapist of some sort was always was always there and growing up. I had a a, a family of, of lawyers, so there was this sort of preordained idea that I was going to be a lawyer, and I never really dug deep enough to give time for this other tug in me to be a, actually I started off wanting to be a nurse and then I wanted to be a doctor and then I just let it go because I thought the least line of resistance was just to follow what everyone thought of me which is not not untypical amongst us if we've got a fairly persuasive and powerful family culture and our roles get locked early on a lot of us just delegate our own thinking and, and working out what we really want in life, which was certainly the case for me. And certainly a lot of people I talk to in my consulting room find themselves on paths that wasn't really their own. They took it on for other reasons. Anyway, I did I did the law thing, but my heart wasn't really in it. I'd find myself in meetings. I, I ended up qualifying into a, a very niche area of personal taxation. So in a in a, uh, a, a firm in the city of London. And so I was meeting 
what, what's called high net worth individuals, very rich people who had yes. lots and lots of money, <laughs> lots of money that they needed to save tax for. They needed to save their money. They wanted to minimize their tax bills on this money. So I would be sat there with my seniors helping to work out ways through sort of trust funds and clever ways to dodge taxes for them, which never really sparked my passion. I don't know why. I, I know, thrilling. strange that. <laughs> exactly. And and strange that. I didn't really care that much. But what I did care about and was their stories, their people's stories. And I'd, I'd get much more kind of sucked into the, the people I was talking to or their family dynamics or sort of interesting family stories. So I think this sort of piqued my interest, I think, towards I was still, oh, should I be a nurse or... Shall I? Anyway, I the seeds were sown for me to jump ship, and actually, to just fast forward to what we are going to come on and talk about a bit more is that meanwhile I was I'd been with my my now husband, my partner I'd met at a very young age, my first day at university, and we were still together. And by our kind of mid to late twenties, were planning to get get married and have a kid. What then happened is I my my first pregnancy ended in. very late miscarriage of twins and that for me as you can imagine was quite an explosive experience it really shattered my world and was really formative on so many levels but I think it was the clincher for me to galvanize okay this big thing has happened in my life and I want I don't want to be miserable in my job as well as being miserable uh (laughs) <laughs> miserable for obvious reasons. I think that was the real, yeah, galvanizer for me to change track. I'd all, uh, uh, and uh, after that, I, I'd begun some um, voluntary work, doing some support work for the Miscarriage Association. Mm-hmm. This was 20 years, well, it was 19 years ago now. So it was a very different landscape. I would say that the field of pregnancy loss support has come on a huge amount. By no stretch are we there. It's There's huge room for improvement and the taboo is still there. The support is still lacking. We can come on to this. It's still a very minimized and relegated experience. But 19 years ago, my goodness me, that it, it really, you couldn't even say the words out loud. It, it's, it, you would never find, well, the internet didn't really exist in the way that it d- does now. True. I, I seem to remember, yeah, it would have been dial up waiting. So <laughs> there wasn't online support and my experience of grief was incredibly isolating and that motivated me to, I remember calling up the landline at the Miscarriage Association, speaking to the national director, who's still there now, and said, look, what can I do because of my own experience? With that sort of, that desire to help pushed me further. And I, I ended up just doing the whole hog and, and doing a, a five-year training and retraining as a psychotherapist with a view to supporting uh, women and couples. I work with women and couples who've experienced miscarriage and pregnancy loss, but I've also expanded my practice over the years to work with lots of what we call presenting issues, a lot of anxiety and depression, particular interest of working with an inner critic, which is a subject of my next book, but almost invariably the inner critic self-criticism comes up in the realm of kind of grief around infertility and pregnancy loss as well. I am curious because I do feel like there's, I don't want to say we fall into two camps, but I feel like when something like grief or loss happens, we either don't want to face it or talk about it at all. We don't want the painful reminders of something bad that's happened to us. Whereas you went the opposite direction and said, I want to help or I'm going to completely change my life around this. I think I think I was just felt so, well, I felt so cross, A, that it had happened to me, but 
be that it was a this is the thing I think around pregnancy loss and infertility. One thing that I'm sure you appreciate that the grief around miscarriage and infertility is such an idiosyncratic one. It's little understood from I think especially most most of the outside world because it's grieving something that is so personal but very much in the kind of mind of the griever, the mum or the couple. Until the baby is in the world, we we don't really have a relationship with it, whereas you know the, a mother and the parent does. And that curious nature of the grief, it's a life that has been mapped out and imagined and cared for and the bond with the unborn. I think it's, you alluded to it about grief in general, that I think as a culture, we're not very good with grief full stop. Yeah. I mean, even those uh, of uh, people who've lived live life on earth and taken breath on earth um, and there are sort of stories to be told about that person that we kind of tend to shy away from it we don't want to face it and I think there's you know a whole other piece there around that that if only we are encouraged to from a very early there are cultures where it is far more spoken about and accepted and talked about death is integral to life and I, I think that's a much healthier way to be but we're not like that so we shy away from grief but we then we also as so we're predisposed to not even think about death but then you throw in the mix this curious nature of a pregnancy loss which becomes pretty kind of moral and political and ethical and difficult because also what we're struggling with is that is the nature of personhood what is this baby right to to a pregnant woman and her partner more often than not that that baby however little it was maybe it was just eight eight weeks in the womb or 30 weeks in the womb it was very much a, a loved for child but to the outside world especially with uh, bear in mind the vast majority of miscarriages were not like my first one they, they happen in the first trimester before 12 weeks but miscarriage in the, in UK law goes up to the 24 weeks of pregnancy and it's an ambiguous loss in the nature of for, for a lot of people is this a baby <laughs> is this a baby that we should grieve and mourn so I think that makes miscarriage particularly well, one of the many reasons I think there are lots of reasons why miscarriage is such a disenfranchised grief and so little understood but it's it's unseen it's we're not quite sure how to respond to this loss and yeah, as I said, I think there's also, I'm really going off piste here now, but I think certainly <laughs> my, my, not maybe off piste, but I suppose I'm just teasing out all the reasons why the grief is, was so difficult, remains so difficult. But I do also think there's a big bit around women's mental and physical health generally in the world being relegated and ignored and not looked at and people shy away from. We don't like being really candid about women's bodies going wrong. We don't can't even talk about periods in this culture with any candor. We can't even, yeah. It's interesting because since starting this podcast, I've connected more with a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal groups that um, are discussing that. And I do feel like just very recently, this has not been, this has not been a long time. It's been a long time coming, but it hasn't been happening for a long time. But you do hear more about things like periods and period poverty and just yeah. so many different things that you would think this has been happening <laughs> since the beginning of humanity. And yet somehow we're too prudish to talk about the fact that a woman has a body and that the body does things that have around reproduction that can be mentally painful, physically painful, and just that happen at all. 
Yes, and I'm so delighted to see these conversations sparking up and the younger generation picking this up. But we've got a long way to go. And even in the field that I'm familiar with, pregnancy loss, especially when I was sort of researching my book and talking to a lot of doctors and nurses and midwives, and I was surprised to have conversations with people who work in the coalface of pregnancy loss who still can't use euphemisms around vagina and vulva and and blood and clots and so I think yeah this this is another another comp- layer of many layers to why we're really up against it with being able to talk about women's reproductive experiences in, including miscarriage you know as you can tell by the way I'm talking and I've been I am really encouraged by how things have changed I've been talking about this for the best part of 19 years and I'm with you that there is these in, more initiatives and we, there, there are more conversations about, and in the, especially in the kind of social media and broadcast media and all that. But I do think we're at the sort of bottom, of, we're at base camp of a you know, metaphorical yeah. journey. And I, I think my kind of my my individual response to where we're at with with pregnancy loss is we've got to the stage I think culturally where people get that it's a shitty thing to happen to a woman or a couple and they're and, and educated enough to say to somebody I'm really sorry I'm sorry that happened to you when it happened to me people said absolutely nothing they stared at their shoes or left the room or changed the subject that's fantastic that that there is much more acceptance of this being a really tough thing. But I would say, and I'm open to challenge, of course, that the conversation, there, there isn't a conversation. I think that it stops there. People say, I'm sorry, and then they then they move on. We're still a long way away from saying, tell me what happened. Tell me your story. Because there's always a story. There's always a story behind a pregnancy loss. It's A miscarriage doesn't happen begin and end with the, with the bleeding starting and then the baby leaving your body. No, a lot of times that pregnancy had a big story behind it. You t- it begins when you and I write about this in my book. You know, I devote a whole chapter to this concept of a child in mind. That especially for a lot of people I talk to, they think about trying to conceive way before they can see. I don't need to tell you. Sometimes it yes. can take couples years to conceive. And some people are very lucky; it just takes a few months. But even a few months can be hellish when you're desperate for a baby. I was lucky enough to conceive within a year, but that year, my first pregnancy, but that year felt like a decade at, at my tender age of 29. So, you know, that the, the, the imagined baby in, in my head and in people's head is that's where the story begins. This is what this, I guess this is what people like myself I wish for is that under, that, that depth of understanding that when we lose a baby, there is this very complicated huge embedded loss of so much hope and future planning and innocence and once you've had a miscarriage I think it's I've never met a woman who has a pregnancy after a miscarriage without fear. A definite loss of innocence because there's the old adage about you spend your life trying not to get pregnant and then for women that have difficulties suddenly it becomes I spent all this time trying not to get pregnant. And now that I want to, I can't. And then obviously, you know, if you've lost a child due to miscarriage, it, it just, it, the, the whole thing, the whole narrative we've been taught our whole lives, you grow up, you get married, you have babies kind of thing, which we all know is not necessarily the timeline. But yeah, there must, the, the loss of innocence in that. Is, and, and 
And and so thinking back to you know the context of this podcast, I talk to a hell of a lot of women who who we know that we're all, we're generally we're conceiving at a much later age than you know, my mother's generation. And my mother had her first child at twenty. That's sort of a child bride now. So a lot of women aren't thinking about starting their family until their careers are a bit established. So like you say, kind of mid thirties, late thirties. I talk to that's a sort of average age of women I speak to, they're at least in their mid-30s. And these are women who have got used to, to running their lives and how they how they wish. We, we have goals and ambitions that we achieve. We might have a job that works for us. And we have, well, look, we'll have smartphones and we press a button and food is at our door or a, a cab is at the door. We're, we're used to things happening for us within our control. And for lots of women I talk to, having a miscarriage blows their mind because it's that wasn't this might well be their first experience of something just not going to plan also if you think of yourself as a really healthy person often it goes hand in hand I've been really driven in my career I've been really driven in my physical fitness all that kind of stuff so it's not just oh your body is unhealthy as an as a whole it's just that something has happened with this pregnancy so that would also I also feel that's a really difficult thing is I've done everything right. Why has this gone wrong? Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, we're assaulted, aren't we, by how we can change our body and do to our body and the whole kind of wellness industry is really hammering this home. We've got to eat this and move in this way. There is this very strong narrative that we have control over our body's functioning and that just isn't the case at all when it comes to making a baby, that it's got its own laws that we have yet to fully understand. You know, we're at the tip of the iceberg, really, in understanding why conceptions happen in the first place and how and, and those that last a full term. It's relatively recently, really in the past five, ten years, that proper, probably five years, I might be wrong on that, but that the serious money is being thrown at research into miscarriage. Thank goodness. But way long overdue. The vast majority of miscarriages, we we have no idea why they happened. Couples will only get referred to a miscarriage clinic and have research done on their bodies if they've had three consecutive miscarriages. So that and that goes down to sort of one to two percent of, of couples. So a very small number will go to a clinic, have research, and only half of them will have any clue as to what might be contributing to it. So we really are there's a long way to go. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because going backing up to this idea of women receiving these messages that, you know, if only we eat this and run this and do this, and we don't know why this happens, it contributes to this idea of self-blame and self-criticizing and thinking, I must have done something wrong, which also neatly fits into this narrative of women being blamed generally for for uh, things going wrong for everything wrong. <laughs> for everything yeah. and in the reproductive field <laughs> if this is another thing i write about in my book and and that a lot of people rightly have been campaigning for change and change is happening but the obstetric and gynecological language is extraordinarily blamey i mean we start with the word miscarriage what does that convey hello i never uh, even thought about that I never even, it never even came to mind how horrible that word is. I've recently heard so much about geriatric pregnancy, which I think is the worst sounding thing I can imagine. But miscarriage never even came to mind. 
So I can throw it, throw some other words at you that might still linger in the textbooks. They might be spoken less. I know that in other countries they're still used. In the UK, we are, and thanks to campaign work and, and real advocacy work, that language is changing. But when I my first miscarriage was due to an incompetent cervix. So, you know, I was being told that, oh. yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty, pretty poor show of my womb. That still lingers. It shouldn't be used. Doctors should be saying weakened or weak, but I still hear it come through. We also have uh, mucus that can be hostile. Women are still, I spoke to a woman this year who was told that her pregnancy had failed. That's another really common one. And certainly in kind of fertility clinics, it's a sort of failed rounds of IVF. So very blamey stuff around the women. And I'm also here, anecdotal stories still dripping through that a couple might be struggling to conceive and they go to their GP. And the first thing is people leaping up and down to get the women tested. And then as an afterthought, oh, yeah, we better we better check out your sperm. But when I started in this field, I, I met couples who were trying for years before it occurred to anyone to check the sperm. And oh, look, there's a problem there. We now know that male factor infertility accounts for half of known infer infertility issues. But that took a long time to, to get going. Well, I've also read recently about the age of male sperm as well, which is yeah. here. I feel like I had to dig that up because someone said something about geriatric pregnancy. And I was so annoyed by that term that I actually yeah. started looking into it because I was like, there must be something. And I don't feel like it's a very commonly printed article that you read about, they talk about the woman's too old, but they don't talk about the men can keep having babies, but the sperm is not as healthy, just in the same way that it's more difficult for a woman. Yeah, let's take it further that childless man in his 50s or 60s is, could be a charming silver fox, but God forbid a childless woman in her 50s, 60s, she's barren, yes. cat lover. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still, the, it's still the cliche, it really is. Uh, I do, again, to be fair, I think we're getting better that especially in the younger generation, people are speaking out and saying, I am proud to say I don't want kids or, yeah. and hopefully if they do, it will become a conversation if they don't, that any kind of difficulties can be talked about. Yeah, I'm with you. and But I think it takes a, a certain courage. I don't think that's for every woman to, to be able to, because it's such a personal thing, isn't it? And I think it takes a certain type of person to, to be able to kind of own that and talk about that. But some people feel like it's none of anybody's business for me to have to define myself in this way. It's in a complicated area. So yes, before we started recording, I was mentioning the difficulties that, that, that women I know have said people have glazed over if they want to talk about things. But, but what would you say? Because we, I think a lot of times people don't say something because they don't know how the mother feels, how the loss of pregnancy feels to the woman or to the couple. Um, it's just how to navigate that if you're someone who's wanting to speak with someone. Yeah, well, something as simple as, I'm really sorry what you've been through. I'd love to talk to you about it. How do you feel? How do you feel about talking about it that you don't have to? Those are my words. But just checking out if the mother wants to talk or not. And if you're offering her condolence, then you might, you'll be, I'm hoping, able to suss out whether she's willing to talk or not. You back away, but there's no harm in, in trying. 
that's but that's if you want to i don't think i don't think we should all be forced to talk about anything we don't want to talk about but if you are somebody who really wants to help and be there then check out if that's okay and it might well be that the mother doesn't want to talk and she'll say do you mind if i, I don't want to talk about it but but throw the die and also knowing that someone's willing to talk about it in general if i guess hearing you say that it makes me think about all the things that you're probably dealing with in your practice but any kind of mental health issue, depression. I think we struggle so much to talk about things and knowing that someone's there that's willing to talk to you, whether it's at that mm. moment or when you're ready. I just think it's a huge thing that we struggle with so much, but just saying, are you okay? Do you want to talk to me? I'm available if you do. And if it feels comfortable, making it clear, look, I really want to hear, I really want to hear your story. I really want to listen because the griever might well be thinking, oh, I don't want to burden that person. But you know, obviously if that's authentic to you, don't offer a, a shoulder of support if you're really not prepared to hear the story. You don't, yeah. if you are going to flinch. I remember once one of my, I had four miscarriages, but a very good friend of mine who's incredibly squeamish. I mean, poor thing. She just, and I remember telling, sort of telling her my story, and, and the poor thing had to leave the room and, and vomit. She just found it all so overwhelming. So <laughs> there's got to be some sort of negotiation, and I didn't want to inflict that on her. I don't think she should suffer because I did. So I'm being very round about it here. It's just a mutual negotiation. Only do only offer what you can, otherwise it's not going to be an authentic exchange. And believe you me, I've had my fair share of wooden, I'm really sorry's, which mean nothing to me, as opposed to a kind of really clunky, yeah. but heart, heartfelt. I mean, I've had some humdingers said to me, but really heartfelt, and, that, and it meant the world. <laughs> so through the course of these four miscarriages, was this something that you were studying or working in psychotherapy and counseling and everything at, at that point? Yeah, I was actually, because uh, the, these miscarriages happened over the course of a decade and within which I also have two living sons. So yeah, some of my miscarriages, I was in full-time practice. Wow. I'm just pausing because I think how difficult it must have been to be helping someone else and going through it, but also hopefully that you got some sort of satisfaction that you could be helping someone else through a difficult time that you two were going through. Interestingly, yeah, I, what comes to mind as you say that, that is that I pulled away when I was in the, after my first son was born, but I, I pulled away from, I worked very little with pregnancy loss then. I got much more back into it 11 years ago after the birth of my second son. When I was in the thick of it, I really pulled back because I couldn't, th that was a sort of safety mechanism. I don't think I could have really bracketed my own experiences well enough from others to support them properly. It, it's no, uh, the coincidence isn't the right word. I didn't sit down to write my book for a very long time after. I needed that kind of distance of time to, to process my own thoughts and feelings around it. And you know, now when I work with families, I feel at a much safer distance from my own experiences than, than I did when I was going through it. That makes sense. Of course, it was difficult working, but that's what women do. We're all working and living and functioning in the world while going through this the, the, these traumas. And it's backing up a bit. This it, it, That... <laughs> women go through this and they without any support and they dust themselves down and go back into the workplace or back into the family space or wherever it is having to 
quite often dig very deep because there's suffering in silence. I wanted to talk about your other book as well, because I'm really interested, because you say about dusting yourself self off and everything, but you talked about that your next book is going to be The Universal Habit of Self-Criticism. And yeah. obviously we talked a bit about how that does tie into women's health issues and miscarriage and everything. But universal habit, <laughs> I just, when I saw that, I thought about the differences between male self-criticism and female self-criticism being completely, you know, generalized in that statement. But what have you found in doing the research for that book as far as how we self-criticize? Well, I guess my research is, uh, I haven't, it, it has been my practice yeah. day in, day out. What led me to write this book, actually, it was a conversation with my husband who I was faffing around with another idea that wasn't really landing with my agent and he just asked a really simple question he said you've written about one thing lots about what's the next thing a lot about and I just spontaneously <laughs> said self-criticism because in my experience people come to me with self-labeled anxiety or depression relationship problems I don't actually work much with addiction but they might be leaning too heavily on whatever it is alcohol or their struggling at work, whatever it is, the list is very long, it nearly always boils down to one thing. And that is how a, a, a very kind of embedded core belief that we don't feel good enough. And it leaks out and plays out in lots of different ways. And it it's an integral part of the experience of depression. We know that the two are very bound up with each other. We're not quite sure whether an inveterate self-critic Lends, lends him or herself to, to a depression or whether depression creates sort of self-criticism. There's, the jury's yeah. out about there and you can see how much they're bound up. It's impossible to talk to a depressed person who doesn't feel shit about themselves. But anxiety, in my experience, nearly always contains the sort of shard of, oh God, I've cocked up. Oh God, I've caused this terrible catastrophe. The anxiety often clusters around performance and how one is in the world. The list goes on. So I just found my, I, I found myself have found myself time and time again just in this sort of very familiar space with whoever I'm talking to about really getting to the nuts and bolts about of how and I talk to more women than men so I'll just use the word she that that how she relates to herself and I can always mm. unearth a sort of a little bit of wonkiness there that that you know uh, uh, and it, it can it's on a spectrum and it, it we're talking about really serious mental ill health when someone really violently hates themselves and might be self-harming or even feeling suicidal. But it, it runs on a spectrum. Sometimes people don't would say to me that they don't have a self-critic at all. They're not aware of it. But actually, with a bit of uh, probing, we can unearth, oh, gosh, yeah, I did like the wallpaper. That can be quite a familiar experience. You don't even notice that you're actually degrading yourself. And I know it's a bit of to use your word you've used before a bit of an adage there but a question I always ask somebody if someone sort of states something about themselves I go whoa would you say that would you say that to somebody to a friend or to them to be a best friend or someone even would you say that to somebody you met on the bus answer no why would you say that to yourself and that's quite an interesting kind of first step into getting people to think about how they treat themselves and I just because there are so many things we say to ourselves that we would never there's so many things we say to ourselves we would never say to someone else as far as quite so. and going back to you know going back to what we talked about so far going back to miscarriage would you say to a friend who's had a miscarriage you idiot why did you drink that glass of prosecco in your 10th week no wonder 
Would you say dream of it? Or that they had a what incompetent cervix or yeah. <laughs> whatever the words were. Oh my god. And obviously that's not self-criticism, but those are the kind of words you're hearing. Yeah. Which yeah. obviously lead to self-criticism. And I think yeah. I think I'm being a little bit unfair to 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 the men in the situation because I am saying the woman goes through this or what is it like as a woman with self-criticism? But I do think for purposes of this podcast, but also in general, we do self-criticize or we do take things a bit differently. Again, generalization. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm dithering about that, that, that gender split. And, uh, and I haven't really dug into it in my book because I actually think men do criticize themselves a hell of a lot too, but they're not socialized to, to, to voice it. I think women obviously... <laughs> There's no doubt about the patriarchy, but and women undoubtedly responding to cultural pressures to feel not good enough in the world. That's a given. And in fact, I do. I'm lying because I do have a, a case study in my book around sort of outright sexism and indeed racism. But the point I'm trying to reach toward is that I think men are socialized to to be stoic and to be macho and to be powerful still things are changing but it's still very much there so they can't speak up about feeling vulnerable they can't speak up about feeling crap and we know that male mental health is a serious issue suicide amongst men is a kind of major culture problem we have and men mm-hmm. kill themselves at a four times greater rate than women kill themselves and i'm not you know saying that i, I can't possibly say that's all to do with you know with the kind of power of the self-critic, but I think it's a sort of a more complicated and difficult issue that I think men do suffer very badly. They just, they don't talk about it differently. They they talk about it in the way that we do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's why I say that I was being unfair because I think as much as we say that we don't talk about things as women do tend to, I'm really cautious because yeah, I do tend to make too. these sweeping generalizations. But women do tend to talk about things just in general a bit more. Yeah, so. they do. No, I think that's absolutely fair. We do know that when research backs it up. Women are generally better at forging social networks, including friendships, and you know, and and talking about things. You know, the outies, not innies, and you know, that plays again. I, I devote a chapter of my book to this in the wake of of pregnancy loss that as a general rule, don't get me wrong, women suffer and lack support, but they're generally better than their, if they have a male partner reaching out and getting support, they might well be the one going online and, and finding forums or following people or, or reaching for support through charities and, and counselling, but men less so. And men are a very the forgotten grievers too, I think. They're, they're expected. And it didn't happen in their body. It was their partner's body. They didn't have to go through that physical kind of trauma. So they tend to get a pat on the back and give, give the flowers. Here's some flowers, give them to, you, give them to Jane. And that's something I dig into yeah. too, because there's no, no doubt about it. I've met plenty of men who have just, their, their grief is just as intense as their partners, but they're, they're not able to voice it. They haven't felt able to to talk about it and, and actually I've actually come to think of it to talk to 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 a few men who've would say their grief has been more intense than their partners they had a stronger bond with that with their unborn baby than the mother did that, that is perfectly possible yeah hmm. <laughs> I'm just I'm like thinking I about that how to respond to that yeah because I'm really thinking about that's a whole other step as a society that we really need to to look into how do we talk about 
how do we encourage the how uh, toxic masculinity just as a blanket as a blanket mm. statement but of course there will be times that the bond is you see it with children that living births and that the father sometimes is more or the male partner is more connected so it makes perfect sense yeah. that can happen from conception yeah, yeah. Of course, and, and why not? And we have gay couples who have babies. Well, who would challenge their bond with with the baby? They'd have to have a surrogate to carry their baby. But who can question their bond with that baby? Okay. But this is this is relegated and not really thought about. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a whole other piece about heteronormative <laughs> uh, ideals. I know, I like, we could just record three more podcasts about that subject. Yeah. <laughs> it's my fault. I digress all the time. No, I love it. And I really do feel like this was something that I feel so strongly about talking about. I mentioned to you before we were recording, just because I have spoken to so many women for the podcast and have had so many women in my life who just have really suffered, I feel like, with pregnancy loss or difficulty conceiving and not felt like they could talk about it or not felt like people wanted to talk about it. So I just think the more that we could bring it out into the world and make it something that we are happy to have a conversation about, the better. So here we are. Yeah. And the, the, the sort of, I suppose the disappointing thing is for me is that ultimately I think it becomes incumbent on those who have been through the experience to to speak up and that can feel fair enough you might feel resentful about that but you have to take the step to say this has happened to me and I'd really like to talk about it because in an ideal world you wouldn't have to do that people would intuitively know as I say I think people intuitively know now to say oh I'm really sorry I know that's a really shitty thing to happen, but to actually then take that extra step and sit down and say, let's really talk about it, just you know, in the detail that you might talk about any other kind of death or big experience. But there's still a bit of work that we're all doing. And it's mainly the people. Have you ever read a piece about the taboo of miscarriage written by anybody, by a non-griever? it's the advocacy is always done by the person who's been through this loss like myself and speaking up and going this was really shit I want you to understand but it's never it's never going to be from somebody else and that's a shame actually though I say that you say that but Ah. um, I wrote a short play um as part of a drama school project I went to drama school in my 30s but it was about miscarriage based on what I had seen happen to a friend because I felt like it was so important to yeah to to talk about because I saw the kind of pain she was going through and did feel like it yeah I felt like it wasn't her job to have to always talk about it but how wonderful well I stand corrected (laughs) and and that's wonderful but I would I'd say you're quite exceptional yeah because because in a way I feel like why do I bang on about it so much it hasn't happened to me and there is something about saying that I really want to talk about this. Oh, by the way, it hasn't happened to me. It yeah. feels like I'm trying to own something that's not my own grief in a way. But oh, no, I would challenge. I'm so delighted that you. This is precisely, I think, people like you that we need to normalize it and integrate it into life. And it is, as you say, it is your grief. You don't. It, it saddens you. It happens to other people around you. It, it could have happened to you. It's an integral part of the human experience. 
that you have every that you have every right to be to be a part to be a part of and to think about and it's wonderful that you do thank you i just had a moment of free counseling there that was so nice (laughs) i was like tapped into something that really has been that's plagued my mind a lot so thank you for that I back at you because it's I was had moments of hope with my book that it would be the idea was to for it to be a piece of education for it to be quote unquote mainstream I wanted to pique the interest of people who might you know have no interest in getting pregnant or might be a young man or a kind of postmenopausal woman or whatever it was I wanted it to be for everyone to to in the way that I've just explained, to just get people to think about a human experience. But I'm not complaining. It's just, I don't think it's quite hit that market. <laughs> people that are listening, that hopefully there are people that are listening that are just really, their interest is peaked and they want to know more. So the book is The Brink of Being, correct? It is indeed, yes. And what's the title? Do you have the title for your new book yet? I, at the moment, it's Everyone's a Critic. That is the world's (laughs) truest, is it a cliche? I don't know if it's a cliche, but it's the world's truest statement. Absolutely. I think you should say I like it. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. We'll see. Yeah. So on a potentially lighter note, I don't know what you've brought, but I always ask for a quote. So do you have? Oh, yes. Do you have one for Um, me? Oh, yeah. Do you know, uh, when you asked me this on the email and the first thing that came to my head, so I'm going to stick with it. It's a bit, what's the word, numinous. it's this, it's so be it. It's just three words, so be it. And someone, so many years, there's a bit of a long story wrapped around it, but it's a kind of mantra I turn to in moments of stress just to remind me of of what I've begun to know after, gosh, 25 years of a mindful meditation practice and all the other kind of work that I've done around being a therapist and my own personal development work. But it's just a reminder of being in the now and actually touches on what we've talked about before, letting go of the stuff that we we can't control. And sometimes just, it's another way of saying it is what it is. Yeah. So be it. Like it, so it's, be it better than it is what it is though. And it's funny because the way you said it, the way you just emphasized every word, so be it. I thought of that quote suddenly as a very different way than I've ever thought of it as well. So be it. Like, I always think of it as a little bit passive. Oh, so be it. Like, just let it go. Right. But when you said it with those three emphasis, it became it. Like, it really was, so be it. And I was like, (laughs) oh, I'm going to take it that way too. Because there's something nice about let it go. So be it. This is what's happening. But there's also something nice about that kind of saying it in a really powerful way and owning it. Well, thank you. I like that way. You could take it a bit further and some people would might believe that everything is so be it because it's meant to be that way. There is a sort of divine or bigger purpose for everything. I'm not sure, quite sure whether I'm there and whether I buy into that. That's a whole other as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to really work f- because, yeah, I, I can't square that all the injustices in the world that they're meant to be. But yeah, I've had plenty of conversations with people who will who will try and convince me otherwise. But I, yeah, I find it quite a useful just here and now reminder. But yeah, sorry, I didn't come up with something more elegant and. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think the reason people, the reason I even ask is because people bring such a variety of things. And I think mm. usually what kind of occurs to you first is what yeah. it's your thing. So I thought that was, I thought that was perfect. And other than that, I just want to say thank you, Julia, for letting me have this, for bringing your story to us and letting us have this really candid conversation about something that I feel so, so strongly about. Quite a few things I feel really strongly about talking about. I also learned a lot. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for having me. It's been lovely to meet you. Same to you. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. As always, details of my guests and their work are listed in the show notes for the episode. But this week, I'm also including some links recommended by Julia for anyone who wants more information or support around pregnancy loss. Thanks again for listening. If you haven't subscribed or followed the Second Chapter podcast yet, what are you waiting for? The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.